Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast. I hope this finds you well. And in today's podcast, I'm going to be speaking with Steve Hoskinson. He's the founder of Organic Intelligence. And I've been fascinated by Steve's work. He His work is about becoming trauma safe. It's, it's about healing from trauma. But I think he takes maybe a contrarian or a different approach than many people. And of course, here, why bring somebody to talking about trauma onto a podcast primarily for coaches? Well, so many of our clients right now are going to be activated, maybe displaying signs of trauma. And it's important as coaches that we know how to respond in those moments. How can we be with them skillfully? And of course, not overstep our boundaries and know when to refer. But yes, that we're we're also we're we're informed in those moments. And I wanted to speak to Steve because he has this beautiful approach to healing and transformation. It's non-pathological and it's all really aimed at stabilizing our access and increasing our access to pleasure and feeling good and doing that in a very unique way that I, I would like you to hear about. He's challenging some of the sacred cows of somatic work you know, this one, this idea that feeling your sensations in your body is always a great thing to do because it helps us to develop presence and metabolize conditioning and, and things that from our childhood that have been unfelt. Well, he's going to speak about why that's not always a great approach and why the way he advocates can actually be more effective. And I think you'll bring in some really powerful distinctions. I really enjoyed this conversation. I geek out on some of this stuff very much. So I hope you enjoy it. And I'll just say a few more words about Steve. As I said, he's the founder of Organic Intelligence. He has trained thousands of trauma therapists and health professionals and mindfulness experts. He presents at conferences around the world, is an adjunct faculty for JFK University's somatic psychology program the founding member of the Northern California Society for Integrative Mental Health. And his lineage has a direct line to Milton Erickson. And he began studying with Peter Levine in 1990 and then was teaching somatic experiencing for a long time and uh, transitioned into doing more of his work with organic intelligence. So I recommend you check that work out. And to say, check out our website too, you can find out more of our offerings there, trainings for coaches at coachesrising.com. And if you want to sign up, be in our community, our global community, then you can head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign up box, and you'll be in the loop about things. All right. All that being said, let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Steve Hoskinson. All right, Steve, it's wonderful to be with you. I'm excited about our conversation. How are you doing today? Oh, really good. I'm also, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time and excited to get into the topics around coaching and the promise that's there. So thank you. Mm. Yeah, nice. Nice. Me too. I've also been excited to speak with you. And before we bring in coaching, it would be good to, I think, introduce the listeners to your work and your approach. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we can kind of weave in maybe the, the coaching element too. So, but I think a good place to start, I'd just love to ask you, you know, you've created this body of work, actually impressive in its scope, uh, organic intelligence, and maybe you could just tell us what organic intelligence is. All right. Well, you know, I was trained as a classical psychotherapist, 
And then for, you know, 20 years, traveled and trained internationally teaching in the trauma world and the somatic psychology field. Uh, and so uh, what, I, what I began to be concerned about was how we could work in a way with trauma that would be really safe. Um, and I think the, uh, the therapy world is doing a nice job of uh, helping people become more trauma-informed. But the hidden side of that, I think the shadow side of that is that the intensity of the work will for a certain percentage of clients be way too much and will actually be re-traumatizing. And I, I don't believe that that's being caught in, say, exit interviews or in the data. I think there are people that have really intense experiences in therapy that they find unhelpful and re-traumatizing, but that means that they just don't come back. And, and so the therapists don't get feedback that maybe the, the, the trajectory of their work was overly intense and, and inadvertently re-traumatizing. So I really set out to find a way to be able to work in a way that would be really guaranteed and kind of fail safe, uh, trauma safe. And that's, that's what we've been doing. And and in the midst of, uh, of that, then uh, seeing also that some of the challenge is that, that therapists are directing the therapy uh, too much around, say, topics of trauma and, and, um, and really around challenge altogether, that the trauma-safe approach that we're doing in organic intelligence really leans in on a uniquely client-centered approach that finds the way that the, the client system itself is resourcing the client and really building this safe container for any future work. And that's, that's really prerequisite in, in my view is building that safe container in which the future work uh, can happen. And then, and then lastly, I, you know, just taking a quick look around the world, it was clear that the training of therapists was not going to have the societal impact that really I think the world was needing and is needing. The challenges of humanity, the challenges of global climate change, the challenges of stress and systemic oppression, racial oppression, economic disparity, you know, really all of those, I think, are demanding and asking for an all-hands-on-deck approach. And we just don't have time, I don't believe, for a first world, the first-world therapists to get trained up and have some impact in the world. So we began to open up our trainings to everybody and to become uh, rigorously trained in the approach of the trauma safe work and the post-trauma growth trajectory so that more help is available and at scale and conceivably then at a, a, a price and a, a, um, a more affordable accessibility, right? And, and so that's, that was really what we're looking for is to create uh, much more accessibility for support on the planet. Uh, and, and we've been really happy about how that's been going. And, and wow, the world is, uh, 
and governments seem to be uh, making trauma faster than we can we can fix it. Yeah, yeah, really need it right now. Yeah, that's that's one of the big reasons why I wanted to share your ideas with our with our listeners because you know um, we're this is not a therapeutic audience, although I, I think a lot of people listening do care about the territories that therapy goes into, but that it is whole hands on deck, like you say right now, and that. You know, we the, the more people that can be informed in these approaches, the better. And I'm just curious, before we go into the approach, you said, you know, there's a percentage of people that that can be more uh, adversely impacted by by therapeutic work and that the, the focus around trauma and challenge can um, re-traumatize people, perhaps. I'm just wondering if you could say, like, what, what, I mean, you probably can't, but I wonder if you know what percentage of people you think that is that are, you know, that perhaps these more traditional approaches, maybe that's not the right word to call them traditional, but who are Im- adversely impacted by therapy, what percentage that might be? And and why is it that focusing on trauma and challenge, I know you've said some of this already, but we could go deeper. Why why is that, you know, an issue? Why can that actually have a harmful impact? Yeah, you know, we have a, a the approach that uh, we call the post-trauma growth trajectory, post-trauma growth trajectory. And it's called, uh, you know, in the field, it's called post-traumatic growth. But we're calling it post-trauma growth because we want to trend the attention of the field away from trauma altogether because, um, you know, it's been a validation for people to know that, oh, you know, that, you know, people have been given diagnoses, personality disorders, and then you, you scratch beneath the surface, say, of, of some uh, diagnoses, like bipolar, not otherwise specified, and you look beneath that, and you find trauma. And so it's been a, a great benefit for people to begin to think not in terms of like, character or in terms of like some diagnosis that is slapped on somebody and they wear that label forever, but to realize that it has something to do with what has happened to them in the past. So uh, what we're trying to do with the post-trauma growth label or the post-trauma growth trajectory is really to describe and offer an alternative to even the trauma-based approaches because Really, when we're talking about trauma, what we're talking about is biological disorganization, right? The, the ACEs study, right? The Adverse Childhood Experiences study showed that what happens with, with so-called trauma is that there are extra risks of mortality, like, like, you know, like seven of the 10 greatest risks of early death happen with people who have high ACEs scores, who have experienced significant early childhood trauma. And what that says is trauma is not psychological primarily, it is biological primarily. So if we're going to work with trauma, then we have to work with the biology and the biology that is uh, really uh, working. And, And for that, then it's so complex, uh, we work then with complexity science in, in understanding how the biology works and how it will be self-correcting. 
and that self to be self-correcting there's a whole set of programs and a whole set of orientations and a whole set of understandings that cultivate this the biology's own auto-regulating capacities and one of those uh, in particular is that the biology doesn't care about the story the biology doesn't care about trauma in effect it cares about a bunch of other things and those things we look at on our training it cares about intensity it cares about uh, the the way that the system is embedded in its social environments it cares about how the the biology is embedded within its physical environments right it, it has a whole set of human biology has a whole set of important agendas none of which are related to trauma right the the, the basic you know impulse of our biology is to connect and be in social engagement you know and so uh, that the our, our heritage as a tribal species means our biology grew up in the context of really caring about one another and really caring about creating a a a, an ability to process complexity because there's nothing more complex than trying to live together. And so growing back into that complexity is, is what we work with in organic intelligence. And that's the kind of focus we need instead of focusing on uh, trauma and the, the disorders. Mm. I love that because I think this is where coaching, you know, um, like coaching doesn't focus on pathology or on um you know if you focus too much on what's wrong and you then trying to fix it you know that that doesn't really work you know you've got to change agenda which has the opposite effect of what you're wanting um and i don't know if this is too early for this question but i I've, i'm going to put it in there it's like you said you kind of um the stish, this the our systems become destabilized and so you're focusing people away from trauma and it sounds like you're helping the system become stabilized and then I, I'm filling in words, so you'll have to correct me if I get this wrong, but then there's like a post-traumatic, uh, a post-trauma growth that can occur once that yes. stabilization happens. So my, my question is like, what, what then um, is trauma for you? And, and like, what, because I could also say like, oh, isn't there a, a stream of work which is, you know, is, it's about um, processing uncompleted, you know, core affect, which is in the body, you know, and um, that, that, that a therapist or a coach could help one do that. And then when that energy is processed, then it's freed, you know, there's more life available for that person. So I don't know how that fits in with what you're talking about, where you're kind of stabilizing the system. Is there, is there a processing of trauma that's stored in the body happening in that process? Does that make sense? I'm so appreciating that you're framing of this is within the processing uh, framework. That is, it's not sort of re-experiencing or even desensitizing, but processing. And what we aim to do in organic intelligence and what we think is the important uh, dimension is support for the processing capacity per se. 
right? That, that what's important is increasing, and this is what the biology wants to do, actually, is to restore and grow and regenerate its processing capacity. Because what needs to be processed is uh, uniquely determined by the wisdom of a million years of our evolution. And how that processing needs to happen is and needs to reside firmly within the biology of the individual. So it's, uh, it is, it's the hubris, really, I think, of our modern era that we think, oh, I'll, I'll tell the biology and the person what and how they should process. And what we do is turn that upside down and say what we do is support the innate processing of the biology and how it wants to grow its processing capacity. And if you grow that processing capacity, you grow the bandwidth, then let the biology itself determine what and how things are to be processed. And that's, and that's, our, that's why we call it organic intelligence, because we're not relying on the brilliance of the, of the, you know, the brain or the neocortex, but of the brilliance of the organism itself and, uh, and really leaning into that brilliance, which by the way, is, is tremendously empowering because it also is an equalizer in that coaching client or that therapist client relationship, because it's really clear that the intelligence and the healing ethos and power is fundamentally within the client, not within the therapist. That's the expert lives within the client, not within the therapist. I, I get really excited when I hear that because that, you know, earlier we checked in and you said like, what, what are you, what are you excited about? What's coaches rising excited about? Uh, people on this podcast will have heard us talk about what I think you're pointing to a number of times now, which is for me, I think part of a wider transition we're going through as a species, maybe I say being invited to go through, <laughs> uh, which is that, yeah, this top-down this top-down orientation we've had to life where it's like the mind is imposing upon um, our organism, our biology, on, on life itself, uh, what should happen. And it, it's, it's probably led to like the ways we've become polarized and disconnected from one another and, and the environment. And, and so I see in coaching now this schools of coaching which are doing just what you said where it's the 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 dropping the change agenda there's the coach isn't the expert of the person and the map but they're more an expert in creating that environment you described that that can allow that organic unfolding to take place where it's like you you kind of helping the client get out the way in some ways um and then there's some life starts to take over like something starts to come through which is innately healing and integrating and and so i i get very excited when i hear you talk about that it makes me think too that um you know as as coaching is a new field um and there is there is this new field of you know complexity and and the emergence uh sort of psychology and positive psychology that you know there is there is this way in which we're talking about emergence and and we have to hold at the same time and i know you do this um the complexity of the process that is there is in creativity for instance there is sort of random production of novelty new stuff 
But the point is, how, how useful is that production? So, you know, you can, you can uh, want to be a jazz musician and you can, you know, you can sit in with a, a jazz trio and, and if you don't know jazz and if you don't know your instrument and if you haven't played hours and hours and years and years, you'll suck. <laughs> and, and it, um, uh, there is a, an improvisation that has to happen. And the improvisation is built on the rigor of understanding, um, you know, like a lot of complexity. So, so yes, there is this emergence and there is this improvisation and there is this organic process and that happens most readily within the framework of really in-depth training, practice, supervision, exchange, and, um, and education. Right. So it's, it's like the, the improvisation on the other side of, of like diligent, dedicated practice. And, yes. and this is a nice metaphor that uh, might point to how you train people to have that level of, you know, skillful means to create that improvisation. So I don't know where we go here, but maybe, you know, I know you have the Isoma, uh, I think I pronounced that right, um, map or, yeah, where, where would you point us next in terms of how you help people kind of become familiar with the territory of complexity and, and emergence? Yeah, you know, the, the, um, the both and is always in operation with us. So, you know, there's the left and the right hemisphere. There is the linearity and, uh, and then nonlinearity. There is um, the, the ability to be curious. I think that's probably the, the central motif, which is that my curiosity is a state itself. It's a biological state itself that then allows for better and more interesting processing. So with our students, uh, we, we begin with just recognizing that, yes, we're going to start with a kind of uh, recipe, and, but the recipe for how you work simply allows you to get in the field where you get feedback and the feedback from the client and to begin to prime people's awareness for what, what auto-organization really begins to look like. What does the growth and expansion of processing capacity really look like? so that you can recognize it because our feedback to clients has to be that improvised, absolutely spontaneous in the moment uh, exercise in order to really reinforce the, uh, the evolution of the, of the neurobiology. And it's terribly complex, but it is terribly fun and interesting also. And, and we began, like I said, with this fail safe process. And so people begin to enjoy themselves. And so we even have our, our first ethos of OI, which is, and it's a refrigerator magnet that says the job is enjoyment. The job is enjoyment. And so we're creating affective like security and, and emotional interest and engagement and pleasure, which, which everything then else, everything else derives from, because for humans, that channel 
that channel is the is the channel of our bonding and connection and the channel of procreation and the channel of of expansion and exploration you know so so we really land in that area of curiosity and enjoyment and then from there build out our educational uh, process so i think i think that's uh, kind of a a beginning a lodestone if you will that uh, that enjoyment and the and the practice of enjoyment is really key. Mm. So, how do you invite people to tune into that enjoyment? Then, if that's one of the ingredients to stabilizing and and, and increasing our capacity to be able to process, how how do you have people like tune into that? Because yeah, some for some people it can be difficult, or sometimes for everyone it's it's difficult. Uh, that's that's the word. Uh, so it is difficult, and that's and that's perhaps the first thing that we realize, and we uh, talk about this in terms of our complexity science framework, which is there is what we call this strange attractor, and the strange attractor is what's wrong, and we we call it the what's wrong attention, and in science you've probably heard of it as being the negativity bias. Our attention is drawn toward what's wrong, and then reiterates states of distress or states of trauma or states of fight, flight, and freeze, because the attention is always stimulating and overstimulating our, our neurophysiology because of its a draw to what's wrong. And so that's where we begin. We just go, that's the law. That's how we are. And so uh, we are swimming upstream of that. So we know, one, it's going to take some time. And two, we're going to celebrate when we can get out of the, you know, the event horizon of that attractor and then begin to enjoy that. Um, And so we begin with just the notion that it it ain't easy. And, And because the law is the attention to what's wrong. And, uh, and then we practice and then we celebrate when something else happens. But the antidote really for that, the what's wrong attention, negativity bias, isn't to like feel better, feel happy, be Pollyannish, always look on the bright side of life or something, but is, is actually just to be in the here and now. It's the simplicity of the here and now awareness that we call orientation is connecting to the environment through the senses. So uh, mostly that what's wrong attention means my attention is withdrawn and into my inner experience, like my emotional experience or my cognitive experience, my, my thoughts, my feelings, the images, and so on. We get a respite from that if we can bring the attention outward, out into the environment and let the brain map us into reality. And we say that that orientation then is the portal into here and now. And that begins the antidote to the what's wrong attention. And so that's that's how we begin. And that's one of the fundaments of stabilization also, which is to bring the attention out into the external world and come back to our senses and to allow our senses to feed our brainstem what uh, the eminent uh, neurophysiologist uh, Stephen Porges, who founded you know, the Polyvagal Institute calls the neuroception of safety. When I, when I get my attention out into the environment and I'm not in a life-threatening situation, my brainstem is flooded with information, not of what's wrong, 
but of what is. And the simplicity of that helps my system not recreate unnecessary states, say, of fight and flight and freeze, but of simple presence to this moment uh, as it presents itself. So that's, that's where we begin. I like that because, you know, a lot of times people might say the opposite, you know, like feel the feeling or, you know, stay with it. And what I'm hearing is you're saying not kind of the opposite, you know, like put your attention out. And, um, you know, I'm imagining that then that might mean you, I mean, how does that go? Like, is it people kind of look and they see the blue sky or something and then they just feel like, oh, that's nice or... I don't know, the shape of the, the flowers or something like that. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious, but it's different than how people might normally orient, which is, you know, in, especially in the coaching world, in the therapy world, which is like often feel, feel the feeling. That's right. And, and there's a place for that. But as I said, we build this like nest that then hold, that can hold and easily hold intensity. And what we find is when we build that nest through grounding in reality, in physical reality, and in the contact with the world about us, that, that the psyche itself, this, the, prime, the, the biology has two major interests. One is survival and status quo. And one is then the restoration of the growth of processing capacity and the ability to be in more complex and interesting situations. So uh, when we get this orientation, uh, it satisfies this need of the biology to survive, to retain the status quo, because it's not a change. It's simply a recognition of what is. And in that, then, we begin to grow this capacity to then let the psyche, let that biology express, then, its need for growth. And it does exactly what you say, which is once we get out of the sway and the, and the gravitational pull of the what's wrong attractor, then the attention opens and it begins to select in the environment that which is typically more supportive. And so we look out and then it's uh, the green of the trees and the blue of the sky and the beauty of the child's smile. And, and all of a sudden we are bathing ourselves in, the, in, the, in sort of the beauty of the world about us. And that can be, uh, there was a theologian who said, if we could but see a grain of wheat, we would go mad with wonder. If we could but see a grain of wheat, we would go mad with wonder. And when we begin to come back and we, our system and ourselves are then grounded in the reality of the here and now, and we experience some of the wonder of that, then we're building that nest into which the intensity is, uh, is almost an afterthought and easily processed. And, and mm. that's, that's revolutionary that the, the building of that stability builds this nest in which the intensity is processed and easily and almost as an afterthought. It becomes automatically processed and e easefully processed. And that's, that's a, a very nearly a miraculous shift for those of us that have been working in the trauma field. The, yeah, I, I can see like that picture of, yeah, if you're, if you're not, if you don't have the structure, if you're not stabilized, then 
that intensity is going to overwhelm you. Uh, you said re-traumatize perhaps even, but actually once you have that space, the structure, then the intensity is even, almost an afterthought. And I, I guess I'm wondering, um, how, do, how does that go then with you know people who are in this approach, if they're a client, um, you know, do, is it that the person working with them will support them to, you know, to, to get out of that destabilized place and then you know, organically, that client will notice like some some kind of, you know, deep affect or, uh, you know, something rise inside of themselves. And yeah, what's that process there? Is it like you just pay attention to it? How do you how do you how does that go? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm, uh, I'm so appreciating the depth of your interest in human unfolding. It's just it just emanates so clearly. And uh, so thank you for that. Uh, nice to be partners. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how that works is that we begin really by focusing on the relationship itself. The, uh, the neurobiological container for the client is then mirrored by the relational container between coach and client. So it all begins in that relationship and that safe enough relationship and that attuned relationship our first map is the attunement map, and we really spend so much time really emphasizing the different dimensions of attunement and the ways of being with a client exactly where they are, which means the client may have trauma and past events that they want to discuss and talk about and process, and we're right there with them. And at the same time, we are offering this framework of expansion and growth in this post-trauma growth trajectory uh, that people then have to, you know, really consider and train in as well. As you know, we have the, the end of trauma course, which then allows people to practice the, the growth of capacity because our systems are growing not through the window of tolerance. Okay, I'm going to grow to tolerate more unpleasantness, but through this channel of pleasure. I call it the window of pleasure. We, we, we grow our thresholds through positive reinforcement, and we stay, we stay stable through negative reinforcement. So as people work through the post-trauma growth trajectory, they're shifting their biology from the addiction to negative reinforcement which is there to help our biology function and, and stay stable. But then to expand, we have to grow our capacity to experience pleasure. And that's what takes practice. Uh, you know, if you, have, if you have clients, you know, many times therapists or, or mindfulness teachers sort of bemoan, like, wow, we have this really tough job because we're trying to make people you know, hold their attention to, to what's unpleasant, that which they don't want to experience. But it is much more challenging to, to sustain attention to the arousal of pleasure and allow that to elaborate in all of our channels. That's really the challenge. And that's, that's what we train in. We train in growing our capacity and growing our, what we call the thresholds of intensity through positive reinforcement, which is largely pleasure and interest, curiosity, engagement, 
excitement. That's how we grow. That's how we're meant to grow. Well, that sounds like way more fun as well, you know, to think about that. Yeah. But I, I get it, you know, like, um, yeah, the, the, we don't train ourselves in, in how can we ex- expand our capacity to experience pleasure. And so I'm just wondering, um, how, how does that go? Like, um, you know, is there, is there, a, are there cycles to that or, um, you know, like, I hear that there's like an orienting thing. If I see the blue sky, then I might feel pleasure. Yeah. And so is it then let you feel the pleasure and yeah, I'm just wondering how that process, how we expand that capacity. One of our, uh, in the, in the post-trauma growth trajectory, there's, there are very clear phases of, uh, of neurobiological organization. And again, This is based in complexity science. So there are three major phases of growth and development. And we, we train our coaches to recognize the criteria of those phases within a biology and their transition. And so uh, that, that transition happens over time. And one of the transitions that happens uh, from, you know, like phase one to phase three is the growth in what is called differentiation. And differentiation is usually thought to mean more different, but this really comes out of the, is articulated really well by uh, the family therapist, psychiatrist uh, Murray Bowen. And in that um, differentiation doesn't mean to become more different. It means a systemic quality of relationship where there is a balance between say the individual and the collective or a balance between uh, autonomy and cooperation. And, uh, and that differentiation also means to become more expert and more specific. So when we look around and we let our eyes go where they want to go, and then we feel pleasure, we would want to then elaborate that pleasure in one's experience. How do we do that? Because pleasure is a general sense how does it actually manifest in the biology? And that's where we have the isoma uh, graphic to help us differentiate because there are specific channels of experience that the biology presents our experience to us. And isoma stands for image, sensation, orientation, meaning, and affect. And those five then are going to be the channels in which we experience everything. And when pleasure comes in, the question is maybe like, oh, how do you experience that? And we, we learn to experience that in all of the isoma channels that are really meant to feed back with each other and amplify and inform our experience. And so in, for instance, in psych- psychologically, when you're thinking of, say, dissociative disorders or something, what that really means and break the, breaking that down into the biological component, it means that the isoma channels aren't feeding back. They're not talking to each other. So we build the ability of the experience of isoma, image, sensation, orientation, meaning, and affect to speak to each other by elaborating first in orientation and how orientation then elaborates in all the other channels around pleasure. So when I see that blue sky and I feel my eyes widening a little bit, that's a sensation. 
and I have an image of like a, a, a seagull flying across the blue sky. And then I have a thought like, this is a beautiful world that we live in. And then I have the affect of like gratitude. And I've just elaborated that pleasure experience in a differentiated fashion in each of the channels of isoma so that then they're really on the same page. They're resonant with each other rather than having different uh, comments that are you know, tangential to the experience. And we build and grow intensity by growing the interconnections among those isoma channels and especially then in pleasure that grows intensity. And we then grow our window of enjoyment. Mm. Yeah, that, that starts to, I see it all come together that they're working in tandem and that it sounds like you're, you're kind of aligning everything up with that to be the same, ex oriented to the same experience, which enhances it and, and then increases our capacity to feel pleasure. And, um, and I just wonder if there's uh, like phases to that, because, you know, that could be a lot of work as well, you know, like um, to, to begin to, be, you know, recognize those differentiated channels and, and line them up. And um, but then I hear in the way you talk about the work, it's also um, organic, you know, that there is a there's an emergent element to it. So I wonder if that, if they fit together, you know, like in a way there's one side, there's, there's work to, to do here to orient to it. But on the other hand, there's, we're letting the physiology do its thing. Yes. Well, thank you again for the question, because really this came about because I was, I was working clinically and trying to figure out how to, to work more trauma safe. And, and I began to see that once orientation came on board, then these resources would arise organically. And so uh, we do uh, train uh, people to look in each of these isoma channels. As you know, in the end of trauma course, every week we focus on some of the nuance of paying attention to each of those channels as a support. And, and then we also look at which ones in the coaching course, we look at what's arising organically. So, uh, so there may be, you know, the eyes finding the blue sky, and then people will then associate to something about that pleasure with a question of, oh, when you, when you experience the pleasure of that, how do you notice that? And they, then, then they'll give you an isoma answer. The, well, I notice it, I guess, in my feelings. I guess it's an emotion, right? And as you have that emotion, say, of gratitude, is it is it showing up in some other part of your experience, say in sensation or image? And then we just invite those explorations according to the inclination of the client. So we're really following and inviting the client to explore this, but in the way that their own inclination uh, would lead. And so it's, it is quite organic in that way. Mm. You know, and, and I should say that there is this system of isoma and the isoma system itself is then nested not only within the reflections of the individual biology, but also within the, the representations of larger social structures, meaning that we contextualize the experience individually in isoma, but our individuals are nested within systems 
like a family system or a or an affinity group or within the system say of our species or within the system of the planet and nature or within the cosmos the more spiritual realm and so we take this larger framework the systems framework from the individual and also contextualize that within the person's sense of belonging and relationship to all of the other systems that they belong in. So it's, it's not even primarily an individual clinical process, but it is always relational and intersectional and how that individual biology is relating to the family and to the family of, of life all, all the way around. Could you say about a bit about what that makes what makes possible there? Like it sounds like you're um, you're just increasing the the kind of environment, how could I, the system within which. So you're recognizing more of the system that that person's already embedded within anyway, which increases the realm of possibility. I'm just wondering, yeah, how come you do that? Oh, that's uh, thank you again for the question. So. When we're working in the isoma channels, image, sensation, orientation, meaning, and affect, what we do in the, in the end of trauma course is that we recognize, again, the what's wrong attention, that's the law. And that is the, the status quo attractor. And there's, it's, it's not problematic, really. It's there to keep us from changing fundamental properties of the neurobiology, which could be disintegrating, disorganizing, or even fatal. So the stability of that is really key and that status quo attractor is important. And so as a consequence, most of the messaging and most of the signals from ISOMA are going to be status quo signals, like don't change signals. But there are other messages that are coming from one or another of those ISOMA channels that are not stay the same, but are grow your capacity grow your capacity through pleasure, grow your capacity through expanding the experience of this moment in a, in a meaningful way. And in the same way, there are going to be messages from this larger systems, what I call the biology to cosmos framework, in which there are also messages coming from those system frames that are likewise the grow your capacity messages. So a person in their family may have gotten the message like, ah, you're a, you're a punk and you'll never amount to nothing. And so from the family system, there may be that message. And then from the experience of nature, uh, a person may walk into the forest and go, wow, I'm actually a part of this whole thing. And in, in light of that, you know, in, in light of, all of nature, I am nothing, but that too is just as glorious as the grain of wheat. And so they realize from the nature perspective that, that, that nothing definition that came from the family actually has a much greater meaning that expands their sense of who they are. And that's always happening. That, that, that is auto-organization in action and it's always happening always i mean that's just a exquisite example that's beautiful i really it really lands why you would 
expand that range of where you what you include inside of the work it's it's really lovely um yeah i'm impressed and i i, I think i want to ask about um I think one thing we talked about this quite a lot, but I may, maybe making it explicit, like negative reinforcement, that that idea. I think that um, well, what it, what do you mean by that? And and um, I know we've been talking about it in a way, but let's underline it and how that can actually have a negative impact. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much. The uh, negative reinforcement is the sponsor of the negativity bias and and addiction, actually. So OI is fully an addiction model well as well, a recovery model. And negative reinforcement, um, and you could look this up in your, you know, your Psych 101 text, but negative reinforcement uh, came around and was realized in the early days of behaviorism in the lab of Watson when they would bring rats on into the cage and the floor of the metal cage had a subtle electrical current. And then on the side of the cage, there would be a switch. So if the rat bumped into the switch, it would turn off the electrical current. And so the, the rat would come in, they would scurry around for a moment, and then accidentally at first, bump into the switch, electricity goes off. Ah. And so then they, came, they were reintroduced into the cage, they would scurry around, hit the, the switch by accident again, Ah, and they began to learn, like, for some reason, it seems to feel better sooner over in this part of the cage. And they start going over there and hitting that switch earlier. Ah, and that relief is the motivation. And it motivates them so that then they learn to run into the cage, bump into that switch, turn off the, the electricity uh, right away. That's negative reinforcement. Negative reinforcement is turning off a negative stimulus. Negative reinforcement is turning off a negative stimulus. And what, what I'm suggesting is that that's therapy. That's mm -hmm. trauma therapy. That's the what's wrong attention. You come into your therapist and you start talking about your trauma and states associated with that traumatic event are up and they are unpleasant and aversive. And when you feel better from that, you have then hit the switch ah, and you are inclined to do that over and over and over again. That's the negativity bias, negative reinforcement. Because unfortunately, I mean, to, to boil it all down, that that paradigm says that the way to feel better is by feeling worse first. The way to feel better is by feeling worse first. That's negative reinforcement. And that's what we're trying to be a, an alternative to in this positive reinforcement frame. Because do, do you think like a trauma therapist listening might say, oh, yeah, but what, what I'm actually trying to do is have them, you know, do what I described earlier, which is like, create the environment which is safe enough for them to experience that that core effective state that was locked in that that wasn't able to be felt and that's what i'm really doing they might sit yeah what would you say if they said that 
Well, I would say that I've I I did that and taught that for a decade and a half, and and it's really true that those models, those exposure models, can reduce symptoms. So uh, no question about that. But this this gets to our ethos because symptom reduction per se is not enough for me. What I'm interested in is the person evolving and being in an evolutionary trajectory in this auto-regulatory, auto-growing mode and motif. Because you can, you can reduce their symptoms and get them back on the factory floor. You can relieve their symptoms and get them back to the front lines. You can, right? you, you can relieve their symptoms and then they can go back to being a cog in the wheel of the current system. We're, we're talking about an alternative to being a cog in the wheel of the current system. We're talking about opening into what is properly our birthright as compassionate and caring human beings who are destined to, uh, to be in love with the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I great. I'm glad I asked you that question then, because I I hear the the you know the the ethos behind the work. Then it's it's um, um, a grand ethos. It's a you know it's it stands for a lot. And um, I wonder then, and that's why I think there's some resonance with coaching. You know, like that it's not just about it's not here just about fixing the problems of the the client, but it's about taking a stand for something much larger and more holistic, which um, will, you know, will really support the client to thrive in their life, to be, a, you know, to, to be authentic, to be an expression of who they were meant to be. And I, and I guess that leads me to a question of like, where do you like, do you, is, no, it's like, is there an end game? But like, once people really get a hang of, everything we've discussed today, whether they're really, um, you know, able to access pleasure and, um, you know, orient in a way where this pleasure comes in, expand that capacity. What happens after that? Like, do you have a vision of where people end up in their lives, how they live? Yes, uh, I do. And, and it is that they would live the life they're here to live. You know, that, that, what we believe happens, and we see this actually in our in our courses, is that people discover what they're here to do and they start doing it. And that is that is often characterized well, by the fact that we have a lot of activists in our community. Activists who were motivated by fight, flight, and freeze, who were really jacked up to engage the world because of the terrible shape it's in. And then they discover some level of equanimity arising from a more organized biology, and then some level of like joy. And they find that joy is a better fuel for social change than is panic uh, and rage. Uh, and so um, that's what we find, that, that people find their, their access not only to pleasure, but what is meaningful and joyful. And from that, they act. And typically, they act as a reflection of their compassion and love for the planet and, uh, and the, its inhabitants. 
And so that's, that's what we see. And in the end, in our third phase, uh, we look towards some level of, of just equanimity that, we, that is called upon in the Sanskrit term nishkam karma. Nishkam karma is the ability to respond appropriately to the moment, uh, but without attachment to the outcome. Nishkama karma, the ability to spontaneously respond to the moment, but without attachment to the outcome. And that is, that's freedom uh, and deeply, deeply meaningful and joyful. Mm, yeah, beautiful. And, and, and I just get a sense of like the, the spontaneity that could be uh, inside of that, you know, that we talked in the earlier about the, this kind of top-down imposition we often place upon experience but that found feels like something different you know like there's a there's an orientation to joy an expression of joy which has an an spontaneous intelligence inside of it yes yes that's that's who we are Hmm. um i i know we're getting close to the end of our time there's one more question and then maybe we we see what um else is to be said but so i'm going to kind of backtrack a little bit i feel like we we um we got to a really beautiful place there but this is a uh self-interest question and it's coming back to this the, the the role of the body and sensation in this work of yours because um i think that's a very common um you know like direction or invitation that that people have to their clients and I wonder like what you feel both the pros and cons are of that. Like, is there a place for how, when we feel on the level of sensation that there can be, um, you know, um, I don't know, a healing or a, or, or, or a reorienting that can take place there. Yeah. Uh, well, you're, you're asking one of my favorite topics, you know, I, <laughs> I teach uh, in the somatic psychology field. And so, uh, this area is really so uh, near and dear uh, to my heart because it's so it can be so transformative, and uh, and so the it's also underrepresented. You know, we don't, for instance, model or teach children in schools like to access body sensation. It's it's like it's all about the mind or or knowledge or something like that, and so uh, it's an it's an underrepresented channel of our experience that's, that's vitally, vitally important. Uh, and uh, as, in a way, each of the channels are. Uh, you know, in the ISOMA approach, we really train people to see and understand and work with all of those. You know, as a, as a meditator, as a, uh, as a therapist, a trained uh, clinician, as uh, coach and as a somatic psychology instructor and you know uh, uh, all of these channels are really important the image channel we we that knowing how to work an image and and be fluid in the wor- the imaginal realm that's really key the sensation channels isoma the sensation channel to understand within the biology what is the role of sensation awareness Right. And how can that really help the auto organizing phase? When is that going to be helpful and when is it not? Uh, and likewise, the orientation, the, the cognitive uh, approaches, all of those are important. And of course, the emotional, each of those channels is important. And 
part of the reason I think it takes a while to be an OI coach is that we're becoming experts in each of those channels. So we're learning to work well in image sensation, the orientation, the cognition, and the, and the feeling. We're, we're learning to work in all of those. So each of them is important and offers vital contributions to that. And, and probably the best way to begin to study that is, is in the end of trauma course. So you get a personal experience of each of those channels and, and the, the miracles that can happen in sensation. That's, that's why I was drawn to that. I left graduate school in clinical psychology to uh, join the somatic circus, you know, and I started, uh, you know, training with and, and then teaching in the somatic world, uh, which I did for almost 20 years. And so uh, the somatic language is really key and something we have to develop um, and, and to approach and to be embodied. This is, this is what I was, uh, this is really key to be embodied means a strategic direction towards sensation. It's not to sense, to, to sense the body in every circumstance and every moment. It's to know when it is wise to sort of tune into that channel and when it is better to move into, say, the image channel or when to move into back and forth, into the back and forth between, say, image and sensation. So there's, there is a, um, there is a, uh, a strategy around accessing each of those channels and the uh, sensation channel is is you know one of the one of the very important ones hmm. so it might be that if someone's feeling um anxiety and then body sensation with that the best thing you're saying might not be just to feel the anxiety and the sensation or or maybe it could be better to drop beneath the anxiety and just feel the sensation or maybe you're saying, no, it might be that we want to go to a different channel in that moment, you know, like, you know, or in looking around or hearing the bird song or. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's the strategy of organic intelligence is we provide this mapping that is able to read the person's physiology and to read their capacity and to really listen and, and observe for what channel in this moment is going to provide the most support for an integrative experience? And it may be the sensation channel, it may be the image channel oriented, we don't know, but we've got to be able to have a strategy and a map, which is what we provide, so that we can really help that person in that moment and that they learn then to help themselves as well. Hmm. Well, I feel like we covered a lot of uh, territory here and um, kudos to you for bringing this work into the world. You know, I'm, as you can hear, I'm really, really um, interested in just how you view this, um, this work and, and all the distinctions that you've brought in. I'm learning a lot. So I'm really grateful for our conversation and to share this with our community. Mm, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure and deeply meaningful, uh, this connection. Thank you. Mm. And of course, I want to be able to point people to your work as well. Where can we find out more about the end of trauma and organic intelligence and the coaching uh, program? Yeah, the, our website uh, will get you get you there. That post-trauma growth trajectory and, and beginning at the end of trauma course, our next course will be starting in March. And then the next coaching cohort will start in the summer. So uh, I would say try that to end of trauma course. People get it for a lifetime. 
And so people just go through that course over and over and really learn about the isoma channels and, and the biology to cosmos framework as well. So I think that's a great place. Organicintelligence.org is the best place, I think. Great. Thank you. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.